Welcome! You're listening to Lecture 1 of Coram Deo Academy of Dallas's Fall Lecture Series. If you'd like to learn more about Coram Deo Academy, visit us at coramdeoacademy.org. That's C-O-R-A-M-D-E-O academy.org. This month we're talking about classical Christian education, how to think about it, how to talk about it, and then how to actually implement it in a school context and in a home context. We hope you'll join us next month on Monday, October 15th, as we discuss our second topic, a Christian understanding of virtue and what that would have to say about our use of social media. So once again, join us on Monday, October 15th to talk about virtue and social media. Before we get into what we'll call the five or five of the markers of classical Christian education, I want to give you a very short overview of the history of classical education in general. It'll be five minutes or less. less. I really tried to keep myself to that. But to see why there's this fairly new classical Christian movement, it helps to look at the history of classical education in general and, and why there might need to be a movement now to reclaim something that was lost. And then we'll move into what you'll see on your handout, which are five markers of classical Christian education. What are five things that a school that is classical and Christian should be trying to do? There's lots. Um, One of the things that you'll find if you ever get a chance as a parent, and I would highly recommend this, to go to a classical Christian conference. Dallas generally hosts one every year between the big three organizations. You'll find that there's some disagreement over what is the exact definition, what makes a school classical or not classical. We'll get into a little bit of that tonight. But in general, what you'll find is these are five things that most approaches to classical Christian education will include. And what I tried to do with each of them is also include a key question that you can ask yourself as you're teaching, whether you're one of our classroom teachers or as you're teaching as one of our at-home teachers with our specific model. How can we teach better classically, teach more classically? How can we glean some of this ancient wisdom? I'll give you five questions to ask yourself as you're hitting your head against the table over those math facts as just a little bit of encouragement that what you're doing is good, but it maybe we can improve it a little bit more. Um, so two big reasons why I wanted to invite you here and, and talk about this specific topic. One is as our school continues to grow, you will have more grocery store moments where somebody stops you in the produce aisle and asks you, what is, where, where are your kids in school? We had a great conversation here about how to spell Coram Deo. I sometimes get phone calls and people ask for Corn Diego. That's my favorite. Corn, the food. Diego, the character, or the San Diego. Corn Diego Academy. Um, more people, as more classical schools come to Dallas, which I, I don't mind playing my cards, and I'm actually a little bit excited. I think there's enough Dallas families in the city of Dallas that once they find out what classical Christian education is, they will want in. So as more people hear about classical education, classical Christian education, I think you and I will be stopped more to talk about it. And so I think if we can look at at a bird's eye view, really, really high level, what is classical Christian education, each of these five points, I think you can distill down to one conversation you can have in a grocery store with a neighbor or with a friend. So uh, the second reason, though, is probably the big one. I want all of us, myself included, to be a little bit better at teaching classically, whether it's at home, whether it's in our churches, whether it's at the school. And I think if we get what it is as a big animal, we can apply that and whittle it down um, in smaller approaches. So real quick, history of classical education. 
this is not an authorized history, it's just a bird's eye view. There's always more to the story, but the modern classical Christian education movement is only really decades old. Um, and, and Coram Deo is in its 19th or 20th year, is, is not the oldest, but it is in this movement one of the oldest. Um, with its three campuses, it has grown to become the largest classical Christian school in the company in the country. Um, we're certainly the largest in Coram Deo because we're all Coram Deo. But, um, so it is, this is a fairly new movement. When a school like ours can grow to become the largest, you know we're, we're working at something new. It's important, though, to note classical Christian education is really just an attempt to reclaim something very, very old. Um, something that in the past century has gone away. Our, our dean of schools, Bill Rector, when he talks about it, likes to say classical Christian education for millennia was just called education. And so if we were going to trace the roots back to the sort of things we're trying to do in pre-K through 12th grade here, we would probably need to go back to ancient Greece and the way the Greeks really created and then perfected their form of education. And one word that we'll come back to a couple different times is the, the Greek word paideia. Say it because it has the word pie in it, and pie is delicious. Paideia. You're saying it too quietly. Paideia. Paideia. Good. So we'll talk a little bit more about it. It means a lot of things. Um, Greek, as you all have heard in sermons when your pastors like to talk about Greek, uh, is just such a rich language. A couple of things just for now that I want to make sure we know it included. The Greeks were very concerned with educating the whole person. Gymnasium is a Greek word because the Greeks were really there to say the physical person is part of the whole person. So paideia, education, must include training the physical body. It must include training the mind. And the Greeks also said it must include training the soul. So part of paideia means educating the whole person. The, the aspect of it that I might love the most is paideia was viewed as the passing down of an entire way of life. A value system, a, a, a skill set, a, a whole way of living being passed from one generation to the next. It included way more than head knowledge. It included, paideia is taking the kids fishing, right? Paideia is fixing the car to get, it's passing down a way of living. It's your family deciding we're going to go on the road trip instead of flying. This is paideia, and it happens a lot outside of the school as well. The third aspect for now that we'll get into is paideia. Another way that it's translated or used is really just a love of learning, that part of the goal is to teach students to love learning. And here's where I'm, I need to make one initial distinction. Everybody wants kids to love learning. Every school in this country wants them to enjoy. Here's maybe one distinction I would make. There is a difference between teaching someone to love learning and teaching someone to love school. It's very easy to teach somebody to love school. You can give them devices that they love playing with and let them play on them all day and they will love school. You can make enough kind of fun activities. And we do is I, I bother the upstairs third grade and above more than I probably should because I, I kind of enjoy just poking my head in and bugging people. That helps them enjoy school, but that's not what we mean. Learning to love learning. And it's weird. It doesn't mean everything you do is exciting. It doesn't mean you're going to love every, every activity. But when we get to the final component here, the trivium, okay, we'll, learn, we'll kind of go over a bunch of fancy words. But the trivium is teaching students how to learn which is one step in the stage of teaching them to love learning. If you cannot, if you don't know how to learn something, you will not love it. So we don't want, just, we don't want them to love school, we want them to love learning. 
And I hope as a side effect, they love school. So a little bit. This is what the Greeks really over time perfected and built. And it was when the early church emerged out of this period of persecution and finally had a moment to catch their breath. It's worth noting that the growth was just phenomenal during persecution. But when the, when the Christian church was, uh, was allowed and then official, they really saw education as the way to continue deepening current disciples and ensuring more disciples next generation than there are now. So they surveyed the scene and saw what the Greeks had done with education and took the very best of it and adopted, baptized it. Right? So take Greek education, put it under the lordship of Christ, and this was classical Christian education now. And we're talking 4th, 5th, 6th centuries and beyond. This was a really common theme. The early Christians looked at the book of Exodus as a model for how to engage culture, and it was really beautiful. In Exodus, if you'll remember, um, part of what happened when Israel left Egypt was they took a bunch of gold. And the gold for that gold was this, this gold that was plundered from this very wicked empire was to be used in the tabernacle and eventually to decorate the temple. Now, we're humans, and they were humans, so we remember that what they did with part of that gold was build an idol in the desert when Moses was taking too long on the mountain. But we read later in Exodus and Numbers and Deuteronomy that the gold that was plundered from Egypt was used to create the tabernacle, was used to decorate the Ark of the Covenant, the very most sacred elements of the, the liturgical space in the ancient Israelite world was gold that had been plundered from another nation. So early Christians said, let's plunder the Egyptians. But in this case, it's the Greeks, and what we're plundering is not gold, but how to teach our, our young. And so the earliest Christians really went here. The um, story of the university, uh, I'll, I'll tell in 30 seconds, and it deserves a few hours or a few lectures. Um, bishops who were pastors over a whole region had these cathedral churches. They weren't always beautiful. The cathedral just means the church where the bishop sits. So it could be somebody's room in their, in their house, but there's cathedral, and it would be these centers of learning. And they said, we need to train our people not just to think about Scripture and think about Christian things, but we need our, our people to learn everything. So we slowly see in these cathedral schools what has now become known as the seven liberal arts. And you really see a, an education, a passing down of a way in life that certainly included falling under the lordship of Christ and proclaiming the gospel and studying scripture, but also included learning astronomy and mathematics and science and reading ancient literature, to them ancient literature, right? And even some of their modern literature that we now call ancient, which is kind of a fun way that history progresses. Um, when these cathedral schools got big enough and people traveled from far away, the bishops started to recognize not everyone can come to us, so we need to set up these outposts 50 miles away from the cathedral. 200 miles away from the cathedral. And there we need to send some of our teachers to teach all of these things, this diversity of subjects, seven different arts that are all unified under, under theology, under the lordship of Christ, this diversity that is unified or this university. And this was the, the Christian church creating the university system. And, and so this was... <clears throat> You know, classical Christian education was, was what invented education, what invented the university. So fast forward a little bit, and you get to a stage, and, and trouble is on the horizon. And we won't pinpoint dates here, but think maybe enlightenment and beyond. And, and maybe three things for now, for our purpose, so we can actually get into the talk. Um, three things that came onto the horizon. And I'm going to, I need to actually look at my notes probably at some point. 
Uh, one. Science. I just, I'm a little pumped on science right now because we had a really great lecture last night at church about it. But um, science in some corners began to be seen as the chief of all those arts, right, the liberal arts, and began to be proposed by some as the way to save the world. And science really was placed up on a bit of a pedestal, almost an altar in the world of education to where science became the biggest deal. Now, science gave us a lot of great things. The Enlightenment has brought us a lot of things. But this is one that started to say, hey, of these liberal arts that used to be, you study all of these, including up to physics and astrology, and then you get to study theology. And now science kind of started to creep as this ultimate way of knowing. So this was kind of a little bit of trouble on the horizon. Uh, trouble on the horizon part two was actually a really good thing, is that people looked around and noticed the elite are able to get this education, but not the masses. How can we educate the masses? Are there enough educated people to educate the masses this way? And the answer was no. So trouble on, on the horizon part two was actually a noble cause, which was you need to educate everyone. I spent my, the first part of today in a jury pool downtown. Right? You need to educate everyone. Because if I find myself in hot water, they are going to make sure I get out of it, if I deserve to get out of it. If not, best thing is to be punished, of course. Right? So third, uh, the, the result of the Industrial Revolution and a lot of this emphasis on science was really that school began to be seen as not a place for forming a whole being, a whole human being, a whole person, but rather a place for forming a worker who could perform a task. So the, these three, science, which is a wonderful thing, but probably was placed too high on the, on the spectrum, the fact that you needed to educate the masses and not just the elite, and the fact that you, you started as a culture to view what can you do as more important than who will you become, those three things really led to a fairly seismic shift in how education is done. And in the, in the past century, we have seen this, we'll reference a couple specific examples, but schools changed from centers where you, you studied the liberal arts and you were focused on training the mind, the soul, and the body to places where science became ultimate reality. Uh, everyone got the same education. And at the end of the day, what measured success was how well you were able to enter the workforce and do a task. And so when classical Christian education started to see a bit of a re revival, was when people looked out and, and saw a generation or two or three of the result of that. Um, and some of those results are not all bad. Like some of these things are things we, we would want to go after. But that, that frames us. We'll have to stop there. Um, the classical Christian education movement is simply trying to recapture the best of Greek education as it was baptized by the early church and developed through the medieval church. Um, and it's really going to stand in stark contrast in many ways to the way education has been done in the past century or so. So any, any, let's pause here and just any questions or clarification before we go much more quickly through, in light of all of that, what are five ways that classical Christian education might look a little different than other educational options? Good, and we can talk after, because I know I did not explain it that well. But, uh, so five markers. Before we get in, I, I, do, I do wanna say it's worth noting um, when you're part of a tradition that is trying to reclaim a tradition, there's a great amount of humility that comes with that. 
where we discover, like, we think this is the way it was done, and then we find out another way and say, actually, maybe not, so let's try this. So I want to make a, a couple of notes here. One of them is that these principles, these five markers, can be adopted by more than just those who are teaching in a classical Christian context. So teachers in other contexts can, and I know many that do, adopt these principles. It is just, and I know from many firsthand accounts, it is just simply harder for them to do that when they're in a system that doesn't embrace all of this. The second note is probably more applicable to most of us, is that these principles can be adopted by more than just teachers. Um, In the broader sense of teaching, in the broader sense of paideia, anyone in this room and beyond who is attempting to pass down a way of life to the next generation, parents, pastors, teachers, bosses, right? Anyone can adopt any of these. Um, It's just going to be easiest, it's going to be smoothest, and it's going to work best when it's done in a place that that appreciates the entire system. You can do this in in Wall Street. You're going to have a much harder time than Mrs. Vanderhill does trying to teach science for us to the logic school kids in a system that, that at its best tries to adopt the whole. So um, this is not just for teachers, not just for at-home parents, but these really are, are five things that can help uh, anyone that teaches anything. So first, classical Christian education is teleological. So it's a nice fancy word for it works towards an end, Christ-like wisdom and virtue. So end not as in the end of times, but end as in an end goal. There is a stated, visible goal towards which education is working. Telos is the Greek word for end in that sense. So this is where we get teleological. And that goal is very upfront. We're very open about it. Um, Christ-like wisdom and virtue is, is our goal. So there are subjects to cover. There are mathematical skills to embrace, to struggle through. There is Latin to learn. There's learning how to learn a language to learn. There is history. All of this is to learn. All of this will uh, be learned. But the goal that we're aiming for is instilling Christ-like wisdom and virtue in our students. So what you lose in an educational system that isn't able to define a goal that clearly is you have to settle for standards. So standards are really good things. Standards are man-made ways of checking that progress has been made. But in a system where you cannot say that the end goal is becoming like Christ or the end goal is this stated value, then you have to shoot for what is kind of a not always least common denominator, but what is a common denominator that you can shoot for? So seventh grade is going to be all about these 15 teaks or these these 28 goals here and there. Um, we have standards in a, as a classical school. The classical Christian schools we work with all have standards. You have to be able to show progress, but we're aiming for something beyond there. One of the movements in the 20th century was for something called a values-free education. And it, it makes sense. If you're going to have a school that's made up of multiple religious beliefs, multiple f- philosophical systems, how could you possibly, as a state-sponsored school, shoot for just one value system? How could you train that this is moral and this is not? How could you train that this is ultimately true and this is not? So there was a movement that has since been abandoned, I will say, um, to make schooling value-free. School is the place where you can learn intellectually, maybe still learn physically. Physical education survived the chopping block. uh, But it is not a place where you instill values. That is left up for someone to do. And any time the conversation in the classroom got towards instilling a value, you were instructed and, and had to, by design, not instill that value. 
classical Christian education is very upfront about we are working towards an end goal, um, Christ-like wisdom and virtue. So on the ground level, as we are uh, working with our students in the school, as we're working with our students at home, uh, think about things like who do you want your student to become when they leave your house? When they graduate from your home, who do you want them to become? And in our context, the question might be more specific. How do you want them to look like Christ when they're 18 years old? Have that as your telos, your end goal in your mind that feeds every interaction you have with them. And I'm saying this fully aware of what every interaction means, right? I've, I've had interactions today that I'm not proud of, right, with our kids. So, but this is what you come back to. What do I want my child, how do I want them to look like Christ when they leave home? And that's what you're working towards. So when, when the math facts are driving both of you nuts and there's a shortcut to be taken, how do you want them at 18 to work through difficult problems? Do you want them cutting corners when the stakes are a little bit higher? Do you want them complaining that maybe they shouldn't have to do this when, when the thing they should have to do is remain faithful to their spouse? Right? I mean, I think we're, we're putting a lot of pressure here on a math fact. Um, and I think I'd probably encourage my wife to skip part of homework today. So I'm, I'm not saying all of that. But um, think at it front and center, a sticky note on your, on your desk, on the table, somewhere that just says, what do we want our students to be? We have a stated one as a school. Uh, we exist to train ethical servant leaders and wise thinkers who will shape culture for the glory of God. And anytime we have a new idea or we are considering going a different direction, we have to funnel it back through how is this going to help us train ethical servant leaders and wise thinkers? It might help to make one for your family. It might help with everything crazy going on in your house to just adopt ours and run with it until you come up with a better one. But have, have an end goal in mind. And one of the key questions for this is how does what I'm doing right now move my student along towards the telos of our family, of our church, and of our school? So... We can come back to any of these, but let's, let's move on. That one, I think, takes, takes maybe the longest to talk about. Two, another fancy word. Classical Christian education is eschatological, right? This is the other side of end, right? There's end as in the end goal, and then there's the end as in where's the, the, the actual time place that we're heading? Where we, how do we get there? Classical Christian education plays the long game. It values laying a moral and intellectual foundation over immediate results. This is one where if you look closely enough, might be in really stark contrast to some other, other educational models, mostly because short-term results are really easy to test for. So, we're go so a school will test for those. You can test, did you remember the date I told you yesterday? Did you remember the multiplication problem I taught you last week? They're very easy to test short-term results. Very hard to test whether a moral and intellectual foundation is being laid. You might have to have an hour-long conversation with a student or, or a very long paper or a progression of papers over the years. So it, it's more popular to just shoot for those short-term results because teachers everywhere are busy, parents everywhere are busy, and the easiest thing to test is short-term results. Short-term results are also really easy to reward. Okay, so it's, it's encouraging for them to say, you told me something yesterday and I remember it today, and you can reward that right away. But as in every area of life, it's the long-term long health needs long-term uh, practice and, and work. 
So fad diets might work for quick weight loss, and then they stop the moment real life starts again. Right? You, can, you can do a lot of things short term and see some quick results. Zoom out and see the, a, a lifestyle over a decade and, and see how that works. So we are going to be after long-term results, which means a few things for us. At, uh, um, one of them is we're not going to be the, the way we handle discipline, to be honest. We're, there's a lot of grammar and, and logic families here. I spent a lot of time with rhetoric and a lot of these folks. I was, we were in some of those meetings. Um, when, there's, when there are discipline issues, which there absolutely will, we are in a model that's able to say, look, what we, are, what we are wanting is for you as an adult to be more fully formed in your faith and to be more like Christ. So we're able to allow you and really ask you to be really honest now about why you did what you were doing and are you considering doing it again? And where, does it, where do you think this, you know, you worship on a Wednesday night in your church and then you do this on a Wednesday night after church and then you do this on a Thursday. How, how is that working for you? And we're able to have these long conversations that take way, way more time than maybe the average school administrator's time should be taken. But it's because we're not just looking for a short term, you did X, so Y will happen, let's move on. But we are trying to shape this moral foundation. We take Latin for a long time. Uh, there's a lot of repetition, a lot of, a lot of uh, going over the same thing, a lot of introducing new concepts. It's a dead language. Um, part of this is because we know, because we didn't make it up, that Latin is a time-tested way of learning to learn not just any language in the world, but to think critically about what you say, what you write, and what you read. Right? The, the work that goes into diagramming a sentence or translating a sentence forces you to pay attention over 18 years with us to what people mean when they say things out loud and what people mean when they write things and you're able to kind of evaluate what people say by their arguments and by the words they use not by the emotions surrounding them so we're really really playing the long game there i think that's really good to keep in mind during those days of why in the world are we memorizing genesis 1 1 in latin right now it's adorable when zoe says it so i actually like it but so questions to keep in mind what is the long-term benefit of what i'm doing right now and what is the shortcut that I'm tempted to take? This will not mean that every assignment you get at home from CDA or from a classical school that you're involved in will, will be geared towards these very lofty goals, right? But what we're asking and what we're doing in school and what we're asking our parents to do is when you get into the mundane, when you don't know why something was assigned, when your student is really frustrated that they have to do this 20 times instead of 10 times, I want you to think of that not as can we fix the curriculum, which maybe we can, but think of it as how do I want my 19-year-old version of this child to handle the situation in life when they're faced with a similar, similar role. So classical Christian education is interested in laying a moral and intellectual foundation over immediate results. Three, classical Christian education is liturgical. It's about more than delivering course content. It is meant to instill worship in students. It's very much tied to that first goal, but it's worth discussing separately. Um, we are designed to worship. We human beings will find theme, things to worship. Um, Augustine has said a number of ways, I really like the way Calvin said it, that our hearts are just idle factories, right? I-D-O-L factories. That if there's a void of something to worship, we'll fill it, right? So right now there are people Probably 90,000 people gathered worshiping something right now in a football stadium. We are just, we are filling our, we're, we're looking for awe, we're looking for wonder, we're looking for worship. That's kind of maybe proposition one at this point. Proposition two is we're not in a neutral playing ground. 
everything in this world is actually pulling us towards worshiping it. So it's not just that we have this void within us, this kind of black hole that we need something to worship. We're actually being sold things to worship actively. One of those, for maybe an hour on a Sunday morning, is the church teaching us what to worship. And then maybe again for an hour on a Wednesday evening, the church helping fill that void with the right things. But I don't want us to add up the rest of the hours, the rest of the aspects of culture that are trying to convince us to worship things uh, that are maybe not so worthy. James K.A. Smith is uh, kind of a bit, if you can be a rock star in the classical education world, he is a bit of a rock star right now in the classical education world, a philosophy professor. That's the kind of rock stars we have. Um, he's up at Calvin College. So he has a, a, an entire series that looks at it, but a, a short version of the book called You Are What You Love, and we'll talk about that one next as well. But in one of his other books called Desiring the Kingdom, he, he runs with this fascinating analogy. Imagine an alien civilization comes down to Earth, this is their first contact, and they descend upon a shopping mall. So they pull up to North Park, and they're just hovering over North Park. And they have to have x-ray vision for this example to work, so we'll run with that. And they assume that what they have arrived in is a temple. And they start looking around. Think about North Park Mall. If it's a temple, what are the gods of North Park Mall? Who are the priests at North Park Mall? Right? So what is this? You bring an offering of cash, and in return you get something that, that, go, that goes on your body and makes you feel better about yourself. Right? So he just does a lot of these. He says, now do the same thing. That alien ship, the second time they visit Earth, hovers over an NFL football game that opens with blue angels flying over and an anthem and celebrating really loudly when there's a really loud hit. Like, who is being worshipped here? What, what, what different forces are, are pulling us to worship different things? And then how does, that, how does that affect us? This was a really convicting book for everyone who has read it to read because one of the things that you eventually get to is our students on our campuses and our students in our homes are being pulled to worship things simply by how we set up our space by what we open and close with, we, we tallied up kind of the number of times that you are greeted by a teacher and the number of times that you are dismissed by a teacher. And what, what do we say in those greetings and those dismissals? The example I really like to use is seniors. Uh, every adult in their life asks them a dozen times a week, where are you going to school? If you are 18 years old, and adults who should be this kind of, yeah, further along, and I'm as guilty, I've taught seniors for years and I ask them this constantly, right? What, what are you starting to think? What are you starting to think is worthy of worship? What is of utmost important? If all the adults are asking you the same question, you might actually think that the most important thing about the next year of your life is the location of your college or the course of study that you're taking, right? So it's almost this liturgy of small talk that we have where we're, we're saying these things and we're not always thinking of, of the effect, but if we can open our eyes a little bit too, we're actually, we're actually being pulled to worship something in everything we do. So let's apply that now critically to our own school, to our own homes. In your at-home workstation, your at-home day, um, if you had to be an alien watching this, assuming that your kitchen table is a temple, what God is being worshipped? Is it the God of finishing things as quickly as possible? Is it the God of doing things to get the highest grade possible? Is it, 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 there's a number of gods. So it's, it's, again, probably the most convicting part. Again, for me, who I think told Zoe to skip something today. Um, but it's really thinking about in, in our homes, in our school, how do we greet one another? What do we do before we study? What do we do after our, we study? We can say that we're educating Coram Deo in the presence of God. 
But one of the things that we started asking ourselves a, a while ago was, if we didn't tell students that all of education is pointing towards Christ, would they just pick up on it from the way we talk about exams, from the way we greet them when they walk in the room? Do we, do we pray before class, right? And, and so any, any of these things that can become rote, that can become cliche, are also these really powerful counter tools that we have. So the key question here, if your classroom, school, stage, court, field was a religious service or your home kitchen table or your desk set up at home, who or what would your students be inspired to worship? Maybe just watch them for a little bit and see if that can't help guide us a little bit better. Number four, classical Christian education is about paideia and the shaping of desires. We've already touched on the, the passing down of a way of life. Um, this is one of the things that I have just grown to love about this model is because it, it allows you to do that in a way that you simply can't a lot of, in a lot of other models. Um, not you know we, we give you the work to do kind of for what we're shaping them in, but we're really freeing you up. And I love nothing more than hearing what did you guys do this weekend? Or um, you 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 really kind of worked hard to get that math done so you could go on this fishing trip, so you could go on this adventure. And and so it really, I think I think that we're all good at this love of learning. That if you can teach someone how to learn, that they eventually love. Our, our dean of schools again has a really good teach a man to fish. You feed him for the no no no. Give a man a fish, feed him for a day. Teach a man to fish, you feed him for a lifetime. Teach a man to love to fish. You may have just fed a village for a lifetime. Because when we love something, when we worship something, we pass it on to others. And, and so that impact of that. But really the, the part that I want to talk about here is it's about the shaping of desires. So uh, when, when the church has read the scriptures and thought about what is, what is our big motivator for things in life? Like are we primarily moved by what we think? Um, if we believe something, do we always act on that? And based on what we see in Scripture, where some of the great saints fall gravely based on our own lives, we know there's something more. It's not just if I believe rightly, I will act rightly. What is it? And the, the way that, that, that we have kind of come to see is that it's really we have this heart, we have this desires, our loves pull us to act more than anything. So uh, I, I, sometimes I will wake up really early to do things I love. Uh, and then on a Saturday, if it's 8.30 and the kids are pulling on my, oh, it's not much hair, pulling on my facial hair and getting me out of bed, I'm like, this is so early. When I was like, I got to wait five to do something I loved earlier, right? Your, your kids might do this too. They're getting up for a retreat. I mean, they're, they're up and they're ready. They're, they're ready to go. Try to wake them up for a Sunday morning or wake them up for a chore day or something. They're not so much there. We're more motivated by what we love than probably just about anything. With that in mind, part of this paideia is actually shaping what our students love. We can learn to love better things. Um, if you're a coffee drinker, you most likely weren't when you were five years old. You, you might have tried dad's coffee and thrown up once or twice. We have an anomaly in our house where we tried that with our son to get him to stop asking, and he loves it, just this black coffee. So we, we don't let him have it all the time. Yeah, we are bad parents in other ways, but not in that. There we go. So uh, if, if you, right, so wine, if, if you've got a glass of wine tonight, your first time tasting wine, especially if it was the kind that you taste the first time, you know, five bucks for a giant buck, disgusting, right? You learn to love things. Steak, rare steak is not good the first time you drink sushi. These things, we, we develop palates for things. We learn to love certain things. You can shape the desires of your students. It sounds really manipulative because it is. But it's exactly how we're designed. We, I love things because my wife loves certain things. 
I love things because my dad loved them. I love things because I had a really good friend that loved them. We are just sponges of, of learning to desire things. We know that we can wrongly order our loves. We can love, love things up here that just don't deserve to be loved that much. And, it, and it's, it's, it's all about rightly ordering our loves. So we can actually do that as part of our educational system. I'm really encouraging, you will see this, it is not a, a part, it's not 100% across the board, um, but we're playing the long game, so I would wanna survey your students again in 40 years and ask them this. Our students tend to love reading. It's not all the time, they don't always love it, in some grades they really don't like it and come back, but when we talk to graduates, when we go, I, I'm on Goodreads, this, this nerdy social network where you follow what books your friends are reading. And a lot of our graduates are like, it's really exciting to see them. I was trying to convince them when they were 18 that book clubs are really cool. And they believe me six years later now, but it takes time. Uh, we learn to love and we can influence what our students love. Um, so the questions for us here are going to be, what do I want my students to love? If we, if we don't know that up front, we're gonna just be, be shooting in a lot of different directions. And then on the more convicting end, um, what would an outside observer think that I love? So a fun activity sometimes is to, to write down a list of 50 things that you love and don't feel any pressure to rank them yet, but just write down 50 things that you love and, and let it surprise you a little bit and then try to rank those with what you, the order that you think you love them and then bring that list ranked one through 50 of what you love and who you love to a really trusted loved one that you won't get angry at for being honest and let them just say, actually, I." I would put latte a little bit higher on your list than you did because of the amount of times you talk about it, the amount of times it, it hits the spot, that it, that it uplifts you on this bad day, right? So it's, that's, a, that's another dangerous activity. Um, what do we want our students to love? How can we instill that in them? Uh, number five, before we break for the food that you guys have been so, so patient for, I'm really impressed. Vivian, you especially. I just, this is, wow. Playing the long game here. Classical Christian education follows and teaches the trivium. So grammar, logic, and rhetoric are both stages of learning. So you go to grammar school, then logic school, and rhetoric school. And they're methods for learning how to learn everything. This is one of those things that classical educators fight about. It's kind of fun to just sit back and watch. Some are really insistent that these are just stages of learning. Part of the resurgence of classical education was when Dorothy Sayers started writing about this, and that's what she really pitched it as, that grammar really matches up to this pre-K through fourth grade stage where they love repetition, and to some extent, that's really, really true. Logic is when our kids are starting to ask why. They're starting to notice discrepancies in rules. Why does she get this and I get this? Um, and, and where they're starting to understand the logic, what's behind the scenes of the universe. Rhetoric is when our students want to use their knowledge and actually express themselves we try to give them more noble means of expressing themselves. Um, but so there are these stages of learning and they really flow nicely in general with the brain development of a zero to 18 year old human being. And that's, that's a really neat aspect of it. Others insist, yes, that might be true, but it's, it's maybe more the case that when you learn anything, regardless of what age you are, you first have to learn the grammar of that thing. Uh, Bill Rector again uses chess here. I'm looking for a better example just to one-up him, but I can't yet. I'll get there. Um, uh, you first have to learn, here's what the, what the board means. Uh, here's the name of each of these pieces. Um, you can't play if every time somebody says rook, you have no idea what they're talking about. So you learn the grammar, and it's not very exciting. Um, you're, you're a 28-year-old learning what a pawn is and what a knight is and what a king is. 
The next stage is not just to know the grammar, the names, and you need to know the rules. What's the invisible logic behind a game of chess? The horse can move a certain way that the bishop can't, that the knight can't. And so you have to kind of get the rules. And, and then finally, you do all of this to, to perform the rhetoric, to actually play the game, to use the knowledge to actively pursue something. And then you get to play a game of chess. And in some senses, that's when your love of chess and learning of chess really begins. But it started with this grammar, logic, and rhetoric. Learn anything in, in adulthood, and you do it in those stages. So we really tend to adopt both of those. It, it is really beautiful to see that the way this is developed really does seem to match the way that God has designed us, that younger kids are way more into repetitions and rhymes uh, than we are. We get really tired of that same Daniel Tiger episode being seen a dozen times. They're asking for it over and over and over, right? And then the middle school age is just let's ask, let's question everything. And then by rhetoric, you're starting to still question everything, as many of you know. Uh, but you're also starting to try to use it for something. Sometimes great things, sometimes not so great things. So we, we really take this approach as they are both stages of learning. Trivium, by the way, is just the fancy Latin name for those three stages, grammar, logic, and rhetoric. Um, but they're also tools for how to, learn every, how to learn anything. And if you were to go all the way through with us, you really can pick this up in any year, but, but the goal is all the way through with us, you are equipped now to approach and learn anything, and that's when you can really start love to love learning. If you, we're, we're not just saying love learning because we're saying to love learning, we're actually teaching you to do this, teaching you how to learn anything, and then showing you the, the natural benefit of it so that you love it. So classical Christian education, the question on that, um, it might be worth just as a bit of an encouragement or as a bit of a just let the stages work, um, is, is, the, is what you're expecting of your student in line with their stage of learning? Uh, we sometimes really want them to be um, kind of really quick thinkers, really deep thinkers, maybe a little bit sooner than, than we're really able to click and go that way. Like, trust, the, trust the system of, of ingraining, getting that base of knowledge and grammar, looking behind the scenes and building these invisible rules and how things work. There's cause and effect in history. There's patterns in history. There's invisible realms in science. Um, and then let that fully develop into, okay, once you can calculate the velocity of a ball flying off of a building, you might be able to build a really neat awning over a coffee shop that follows that trajectory, right? So you actually start to, to do things with it. So five pointers, five kind of markers of classical Christian education. I said at the beginning that one of the reasons I wanted to do this was to give you something to talk about when people ask you what it is. And I would say don't do what I just did, which is feel like you need to talk about a bunch of things. If there was a nugget that you wrote down, let that be your grocery store nugget, right? What, what is the thing that the contrast between maybe how you went to school and how you see a student going to school today in a classical Christian school? What is something that, is, that, that as we discovered it together, you really thought, whoa, this, this, this ancient beauty is actually really appealing to me. Um, don't feel a need to, to get the whole system down. Um, we don't have the whole system down. We're, we're all still learning. Um, and this is what we do for a living. So um, at the same time, so take away these little nuggets, but at the same time, really do take some of these key questions, some of the ones that you maybe thought, this is one that I, I really need to focus on. Um, if you're a, a third grade family, um, you're not going to implement all of this tomorrow. It would actually be really detrimental for your Wednesday home day to do that, right? So don't. Uh, but what is one thing this year, like at home, we're going to really focus on not cutting corners. 
At home, we're going to really focus on um, the setup of our day. When we begin to study, do we mark that spiritually at all? When we end to study, do we mark that? And, and just take one of these and work on it and then talk about it with each other. We'll continue talking about it and we'll go from there.